when it comes to the country of China, of course, everyone is very much familiar with the capital city of Beijing. Not only Beijing is the capital city, and also Beijing is growing not just politically, but also socially and economically. Now look around. Besides Beijing, most of us might be familiar with other well-known cities. For example, Shanghai, Shenzhen. But did you know that lately, one of the unknown cities in China started to get more attention, which is Xi'an, and it's only too close to Beijing at this moment. If we can take the bullet train. Well, some believe that Xi'an is a rising star, not only regarding this social and economic relationship with Beijing and with the Xi Jinping administration, and meanwhile, it's also considered as one of the possibilities that technological advancement can thrive in Xi'an as well. Well, what gives? How much do we know about Xi'an, and why at this moment we need to talk about this unheard or unknown city? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Andrew Stokoltz. Andrew is an urban planner, a designer, and a researcher. And Andrew is currently a PhD student at MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, City Design and Development Group. Well, Andrew, and welcome to the missing piece. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Will. Well, Andrew, the pleasure is all mine. I'm very excited about our conversation. Now, as we mentioned before, initially when I discovered you, because this unique article that you wrote, which is entitled "China's Futuristic City," it's a test of its planning power. Of course, when we talk about the futuristic city, which is Xi'an. But again, as I mentioned in the intro, most of us we're familiar with Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, or even Sichuan. Those names are popping everywhere when it comes to China. But Xi'an, I have to be honest, so far has been unheard, unknown. But in the article, you said, I mean, you wrote, and I quote. Chinese President Xi Jinping considers Xi'an as a new era and also is a test. For whether China can boost the domestic innovation and climb into the ranks of advanced nation in the face of slowing economic growth, help us to understand why Xi'an. What is something so special about this place?、Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the introduction, Will.、Um, and then just to, I guess,、uh, maybe preface, you know, why I got interested in in the city. So I used to I lived in Beijing,、uh, actually. Quite a long while ago,、uh, before at the end of the the Hu Jintao period, the beginning、mm-hmm. of Xi Jinping Xi Jinping's、uh, period,、um, and、uh, followed Shanghai recently. I think the city was announced in 2017、um, as part of this plan to create what they call the Jingjinji region or the、mm-hmm. uh, Beijing Tianjin Hebei integrated metropolitan region. So this idea、uh, actually had been around for a while, and when I lived in Beijing in the Uh, I think when I lived last time,、uh, lived in Beijing was actually 2017. This was just starting,、uh, but this idea to create a separate、uh, relocation or administrative city outside of Beijing had actually been around for a while.、Uh, if、uh, you followed some of the like history of Beijing earlier, even in the 1950s, the architect Liang Sichuan actually talked about creating a, a separate city outside of Beijing. Uh, but this idea was actually torpedoed,、uh, shot down by by the government by Mao. Basically,、mm-hmm. thought this was impractical to relocate relocate the capital or recreate a new city. But this idea was revived, particularly after Beijing became quite crowded. Pollution was a big problem in the early 2010s. 
Um, still perhaps a problem, but the air pollution has improved a bit. Um, congestion. So the idea was to relieve some of that congestion and, and create a separate city outside of Beijing, not necessarily a new capital, mm. uh, but the, it was to relieve non-capital functions from Beijing or Feishu, Lugongnong, as they say with the phrase that, that's used a lot in the media to say relocating non-capital functions, non-essential ministries or companies, state-owned enterprises to this new satellite city um, about, uh, yeah, half-hour bullet train ride now south of Beijing or south of the airport. Well, but again, Andrew, again, going back to the article, I, I know that you mentioned many times that when it comes to Xinhuan, that related to this technological advancement, you know, I think right now today, when we think about China, again, it's not just about the political changes, it's not just about the economic growth, but everyone is paying attention to the Chinese economic advancement. But again, going back to the article that you mentioned that this is really a test for its planning power. So how is Xuan related to China's yeah. technological advancement in addition to what's happening in Beijing, in Shanghai, or any other major cities already? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing that I noticed uh, about a couple of years ago is that the city was increasingly talked about through some of these ideological concepts, such as uh, high-quality development, mm. or, which is a, a concept or a buzzword or a slogan that's been increasingly used in the last few years to signal that China is moving away from an industrial export-led uh, manufacturing powerhouse to more of a technology innovation powerhouse. Of course, it still continues to be a major uh, manufacturing uh, exporter for the world. But the idea was that, you know, especially during this period of increased U.S.-China competition, that uh, China needs to focus more on internal domestic economy and consumption and also innovation. So I think these are all ongoing like projects. These all, these initiatives also predated Shaman. So Shaman is not the only part of this effort, but the city took on some kind of ideological significance, I think, for Xi Jinping as part of, it. he called it his signature project or a thousand year project. This is one of the other slogans that's used to talk about the city, uh, one of his personal initiatives. But I think he became invested in it several, uh, 2017 or so when I uh, began seeing the, the actual construction began and these kind of things. And, you know, I think there's a long history in China of, of cities uh, as models, uh, new models of development. You know, of course, Deng Xiaoping uh, was very much invested in, in Shenzhen as a model for uh, reform and opening up in that period. And there were also a lot of skeptics at the time that the city wouldn't work out, that this would be a failure. Uh, and it took quite a while, actually, for the city to take off and become the um, successful kind of center of innovation that it is today. But of course, that was a different period, right? China was just opening up to the outside world. Uh, mm. Hong Kong is right next door. So there was a lot of capital from Hong Kong investors and obviously uh, cheaper labor and, and reservoir of sort of capacity in China that could that could combine with investment from Hong Kong. So that period was quite different. I think it's people have compared this or, or well, in the Chinese media, I've seen Shonan compared as a new Shenzhen, and I don't think it's exactly the same as Shenzhen, but I think the idea of using a city to signal a kind of a new shift or a new economic model has been uh, part of Chinese history, especially in the 20th century. You know, they have uh, Daqing, the oil city from the 1950s, which mm. is a, supposed to be a model of socialist city, right? So I think that concept of using cities and urban developments as a model has been quite uh, persistent. But the question is, obviously, how successful will Shanghai be? How innovative 
will come on be how much actual innovation can it deliver. So I think right now there's a lot of skepticism, particularly in international media. Um, there hasn't been a lot of coverage recently because I think the city has basically just started construction five years ago. And now uh, the question is whether large state-owned enterprises and companies are actually going to relocate there. So that's really the big question at this, at this period for how you know successful will the city be in promoting these sorts of innovations. Um, and in terms of the actual innovations that are being promoted through Shenzhen, uh, I talked about this a little bit in the article, but I think that's uh, a lot of it's related to urban technologies, clean energy, transportation, autonomous vehicles, Internet of Things, big data, all these kind of buzzwords or concepts. Those are the, the things that Sean is uh, supposed to be promoting. So mm. it remains to be seen. <laughs> Well, you know, Andrew, on one hand, I agree with you because today when we look at China, you know, on one hand, some people are quite anxious regarding how crowded are the cities today. I mean, it's not just about Beijing. It's not just about Shanghai. And meanwhile, when we look at this social structures, you know, for example, the job markets and also we we'll look at the ageism and, you know, the, uh, uh, the younger generations, etc. People are especially among the younger generations, they are looking for better options or they're looking for some alternatives. Now, the next question, right. I still, I want to go back to uh, your article. When we look at Xunwan, even though you mentioned, Andrew, there's a lot more uncertainties and there are a lot more unknown towards the future. But again, mm. what kind of elements or why do you think the Chinese government is so confident at this moment mm. when it planning Xunwan or when they sowing the seed in Xunwan? So in other words, how much do you think that the, um, the Chinese nationals are going to buy into the idea that Xunwan is going to, I don't want to be, I don't want to say the word replacement, but will be... Um, mm substitute or maybe will be additional support for Chinese economy, for Chinese growing market. What do you say to that? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I think uh, I personally, when I talk to people in China, I've talked to people who are in Beijing, talked to people actually who worked in Chang'an, uh, they themselves have a lot of skepticism, some people mm. that I've spoken to about the project. So I have to admit that the article, I'm not uh, suggesting that the city will be this driver of innovation. I think it could be, uh, it remains to be seen. Um, and so when you look at the kind of, I mean, innovation through theories of economic geography, um, when you look at the rise of, you know, Silicon Valley or mm. other innovation hubs around the world, usually it's driven by uh, a confluence of several factors. You know, you have investment, uh, oftentimes through government, the Silicon Valley was, you know, actually grew in the 19, uh, in the mid 20th century through a lot of uh, military investment uh, through US, uh, you know, military contracts, but also universities like Stanford, Berkeley, and obviously companies that were created there, which spawned ecosystems of suppliers and uh, multiple firms and sort of a business ecosystem. So how do you create that from scratch? It's very difficult. And I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think uh, Beijing already had become one of China's major uh, tech innovation hubs, uh, Zhongguangsun mm. area outside of Beida uh, and, and Tsinghua, right next to the universities. So uh, part of the idea of relocating that seemed quite illogical because you know, why would you have uh, some of these industrial or, or technology innovation hubs uh, companies, why would they want to relocate to somewhere in the middle, basically in the middle of nowhere, south of Beijing? Um, it's, it's not a great proposition. So I think uh, in order to convince these these private companies to actually move, you'd have to create some kind of cluster first that would attract those companies there. And as you mentioned, uh, 
you know, human capital or, or trying to create new opportunities for young people. I mean, you know, the unemployment in China, the youth unemployment has become quite an issue. Mm. And so promoting this as, I think promoting this as a, a place where you could have new opportunities, uh, new, new uh, human capital that could come and work in Shangan and receive benefits has a lot of political significance. So I think right now it primarily has the political uh, communication significance. Um, but whether or not that creates a kind of cluster of, of, of human capital and, and innovation remains to be seen. Um, I think another another important thing to emphasize is that what are the industries that are actually promoted? So a lot of our attention talks about semiconductors, a lot, a lot of our talk about U.S.-China competition has to do with the semiconductor industry or mm. defense-related industries. I think Shaman actually uh, is a different sort of focus to some degree, which is more on domestic uh, quality of life and innovations. Um, obviously, some of these have implications for national security, but clean energy, uh, urban systems, infrastructure, all of these things that uh, China has also been exporting around the world through Belt and Road, you know, uh, rail development, this infrastructure-led development model, uh, Shonan kind of continues that uh, and sort of, I think, in a way, signifies uh, building on that model, but trying to also innovate in new aspects of clean energy autonomous vehicles, uh, big data, smart city systems, those kind of things. Mm. Andrew, I want to go back to the article. Again, as you were mentioned that Belt and Road Initiative, something else actually stood out as well, which, again, it's one of the signatory projects under current leader Xi Jinping, which is called Made in China 2025. Now, this is what you wrote in the article, and I quote, now, Made in China 2025, they aim to boost the research and development spending and subsidies to give Chinese firms competitive advantages in industries, including biotechnology, robotics, artificial intelligence, and semiconductors. Now, everyone pretty much is familiar with the, for, uh, with the phrase Made in China 2025. Now, to some countries, that seems a very positive promise. Uh, um, again, when you look at economic relationship or political engagement. But so for other countries, made in China 2025, that can be seen as a economic challenge or economic threat. So in other words, China is no longer just a partner, but meanwhile turning into a competitor with some of the countries. So again, Andrew, yeah. based on your research and help us to understand how feasible today it is still for Chinese government to launch Made in China 2025, and what does that say regarding China's domestic investment in artificial intelligence and bio, uh, 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 biotechnology, robotics, etc.? Mm. Yeah, well, I think, uh, again, Made in China, well, Made in China 2025, as I understand it, uh, is a larger policy, right, with, with, with a lot of implications for China promoting many industries. So Shonan is really just one city that uh, relates to this, but I think the idea of basically relying on state-led investment, right, mm. and investment through state-owned enterprises. So, um, but in terms of Shonan, uh, what I noticed actually is that initially when the city was announced, there were a lot of collaborations with these kind of companies. So Baidu has a autonomous vehicle uh, project or, or uh, operations team. This was they announced some kind of partnership with Shaman mm. that, that Shaman was going to be a test bed for uh, Baidu to develop its autonomous vehicle program uh, and and similar projects with some of the other uh, platform companies like Jingdong JD was supposed to be doing some kind of logistics or um, other kind of digital innovation initiatives. 
But in the last few years, I haven't seen much about private companies investing in Shonan. Mm. Uh, I think they set up some companies in the city, but most of the projects have actually been uh, promoted or, or invested by these state-owned enterprises. So one of them is Shonan Group. Uh, then there's some large uh, state-owned conglomerates that are actually, so far, the, the only real large employers that have been announced in Shonan. So like State Grid of China, the energy company, utility company. Um, a new company set up for rare earth or for mining for coal mining that was created. Um, so these kind of large state-owned enterprises are really the ones driving the investment at this period in Shonan. And I think that also has something says something about this uh, growth model and innovation model that she is promoting, which relies more on state-owned enterprises. Uh, probably not completely excluding private companies, but in terms of uh, how does Made in China relate to this sort of uh, domestic innovation policy, right? Like. How much will this be relying on foreign investment or foreign technology versus domestic conglomerates? I think Shonan, the the last few years of, of Shonan suggests that state-owned enterprises are, are not going away, right? They're becoming, in a way, more favored under the current administration in China um, and pushing them to be more innovative and actually uh, sort of centers of innovation in China. And also research institutes, so branches of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, uh, social sciences, I think, uh, have announced a sort of plans to set up an operation, a uh, research center in Shangan, um, and then also relocating some universities from Beijing, Beijing Forestry University, Beijing Technology University. Um, so these are these universities, I think four of them are supposed to set up branches in Shangan uh, in the next few years. Of course, it remains to be seen mm. how, how much of the campus will actually relocate there. Uh, but that could create some sort of uh, nucleus for um, you know, an innovation or knowledge uh, economy in Shonan because you'd have campuses that uh, would be having a large branches in Shonan. So taken together, I think you see that state of enterprises, research institutes, and universities would be the main core of Shonan. And I don't think private companies at this point are that eager to invest in Shonan because I think it's for them right now, it doesn't have a lot of advantages, right? So uh, Shenzhen became a city that really incubated some of China's uh, private companies, private technology firms. Uh, but Shonan really could be a slightly different approach. So, Well, we're hoping that Shonan can be a different approach. And again, Andrew, I want to dive into another uh, topic that you also mentioned in the conversation regarding the concept called new digital Renminbi, which is the digital currency. Uh, you know, this is yeah. such a very engaging, or should I say, mind-blowing concept, because we know that, on one hand, everyone is familiar with the digitalization of the currency, not just in China, but around the globe. But meanwhile, mm -hmm. again, this is something that you wrote in the article. It said, well, for China's effort to establish a new digital RMB, a central bank digital currency that could ultimately reduce dependence on the U.S. dollars and allow the government to collect data on consumers' constructions. Now, help us to understand, because we know today in the U.S., when it comes to privacy, when it comes to data collection, God is my witness. I mean, it, it is not going well so far, or has not been well accepted so far by the public. Now, for China to push this whole online currency or this digital currency related to data collection on consumers transactions how much do you think that people can understand the relationship between digital currency and privacy issue and how do you think the chinese government is going to come out to explain regarding this private data collection andrew what do you say to that 
Yeah, well, from what I from what I understand, and again, I'm I'm not currently based in China, right? So I don't have a super um, like grasp on all of the the debates about the central bank digital currency. From what I hear, though, I think that this has been um, talked about as an uh, alternative to mm. some of the e-payment systems in China, right? Alipay, Jirfubao, um, and those kind of th- uh, ten cents uh, WeChat Pay, right? So these companies acquired a lot of power over financial system in a way, these private tech technology platforms, because they could uh, allow people to make payments quite conveniently. And this c- continues to be uh, one of the main, you know, uh, innovations actually in terms of China's financial system, right? They, China embraced digital payments really quickly, uh, much faster than many other countries. And mm. in the U.S., we, you know, we have Venmo, we have different applications, but really we don't rely on these kind of digital payment systems as much. We still like to use credit cards and even cash. Um, so China really embraced this uh, e-currency, uh, digital currency initiative. But I think from the central government's perspective, particularly under Xi, uh, the power that, that Alipay and these uh, private financial companies were accumulating was a threat to the government. And so they un- unveiled this initiative for the China central digital bank, central digital currency, uh, kind of blockchain currency that from what I understand has not really uh, been widespread, like it hasn't really been rolled out uh, widespread in the population uh, because people are so used to using these other systems. Um, they're promoting it as an alternative, as a more secure alternative, uh, even, uh, you know, as maybe more private, more secure, because it does, you don't have to necessarily send personal information when you use the digital UN, you can mm. actually just register a phone number. So for smaller transactions, it actually requires less personal information. But, uh, Mike, when I was looking into Shonan, I was, I was wondering, well, why is Shonan, what, what's the importance of Shonan as a testbed for the digital UN? Why, right. do you, why do you need a city as a testbed for mm. a digital currency, theoretically? be used anywhere. Uh, but so far in Shonan, there's been some small-scale initiatives to use the digital UN as a payment system for workers in the city, uh, then integrate that with services in the city, paying taxes. So I think the, the goal is if you can integrate this from the government's perspective, you can integrate the digital currency into multiple aspects of people's daily lives and, and streamline sort of how people would pay taxes and deal with government services, then you could actually incentivize adoption uh, more quickly in this case. So I think right now the digital currency remains a uh, sort of uh, interesting thing to watch, but not necessarily it hasn't become widespread in use, but obviously has a lot of implications if you can, if everyone's using this digital currency allows for more data collection, tracking the, the economy, so to speak, in real time, uh, really has interesting possibilities. Obviously concerns from a surveillance or uh, security perspective, which I think would make a lot of people in the U.S. wary of this kind of thing. But, you know, countries around the world, the U.S. is also looking into uh, central bank digital currency projects as well. So I think a lot of countries now are realizing they have to uh, embrace this kind of, you know, technology, whether it means creating a new central bank dollar at some point as well. So I think a lot of countries are actually looking into this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how Sean if Shonan actually becomes central to that uh, effort to create the digital yuan as an alternative, um, but remains to be seen. <laughs> well, Andrew, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to the end of the article that you wrote. You mentioned that because of the establishment of Shonan and also the growth of Shonan, when it comes to housing issues, that we we know that Again, you mentioned, uh, you wrote that most of the comprise resettlement housing for villagers that whose homes were destroyed and to uh, uh, build the uh, the freeways or build the highways for cities' constructions. Now, help us to understand 
how much do you think the local villagers and local people can understand that by moving them to a better housings or by moving them to a better settlement that actually provide better economic incentive to the villagers mm. because we know that not only we're looking at the villagers but also we're looking at the farmers i mean you have to get mm. them agree with you first before you move them to a better yeah. location and again this is yeah. also you mentioned that they might solve the issue temporarily but if we look at the bigger picture regarding the poverty reduction that did not really help at all so andrew help us how should we understand that mm. Yeah, so uh, when I was doing some of my research several years ago in Western China, this project uh, was pretty widespread of relocating villagers in different places to new apartment housing, uh, sometimes not far from their original home, but basically new uh, residential communities. But the problem is when you do that, it looks like, of course, yeah, we reduce poverty by relocating people to modern apartments, but they don't necessarily have the income to mm. support this new uh, utilities that they have to pay for, new costs associated with living in a place like this. And obviously they don't have their uh, farmland plots that they used to have as supplemental, uh, you know, basically source of food. So obviously those are all problems. I think uh, in Shonan, from what I understand, a lot of the villagers have, uh, you know, agreed to the um, terms of relocation, but there were protests and there were opposition over the terms of that. Uh, I spoke to someone who was working in Shonan who said that there was actually a special center set up to handle all of the claims and then competing um, complaints from all the villagers who, who had to relocate. I think ultimately, you know, they saw that they could actually gain, you know, gain an apartment in, in the new city from, from having that. Um, but it's interesting to me that this was that this was the first, uh, this is the first phase of Shonan called the Rongdong Pianchu mm. was actually mostly relocation housing for villagers. So in a sense that this was the way that they approached the development of the city. We essentially clear all this land that we, that they need to develop the, the rest of the city on and then relocate these people to new apartments. Um, I don't know, I don't know the details of, you know, how, how that works on the ground, but I think that a lot of times this, this creates problems and, and, if you don't, you know, give people who are recently shifting out of these agricultural lifestyles, if you don't give them training or uh, integrate them into a kind of essentially That's urban right. society, mm. then obviously there could be a lot of issues with that in terms of a lack of employment opportunities and, and a sort of um, failure to really like accommodate them in this new environment. So I think it remains to be seen as well. Um, I mean, if you look at Shenzhen, right, the development of Shenzhen actually occurred over several decades. Uh, villagers that who, whose villages were were in what is now Shenzhen actually mm. they allowed they they kept their land ownership they kept their land rights and they actually benefited from the economic development because the land increased in value and they became uh, shareholders essentially uh, but that's not what happened in Shenzhen uh, so far so I think this clean slate approach to sort of creating a new city can be quite problematic um, but. Given that they were most villagers received compensation with apartments, they might ultimately be satisfied with the terms. Um, but I think it, again, it remains to be seen. And, and also, I think the the next phase of Shonan is trying to convince people from other cities, from maybe tier one cities, to move to Shonan. That will actually be a lot harder. I think it's actually easier in a sense to convince people from rural areas that oh you could have new housing you could have modern mm. housing this is an improvement for your lifestyle but to convince someone to move from beijing that's actually a lot harder um so that's the big question right now i think yeah well i think andrew not only that's a big question for now but also um again as you mentioned before if shuan 
is considered as one of the futuristic cities for China, or at least one of them, we're still looking forward to see how China is going to grow economically and also politically and also build this strong relationship between Xi'an and Beijing or between Xi'an and any other major cities. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Andrew Stokholz. And again, Andrew is an urban planner, a designer and a researcher. And he's currently a PhD student in MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and we'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to the urban planning in China and also matters around the world. Thank you, Andrew, for doing this.